Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hi, my name is Faisal Khan. And my name is Malni Kannan. Welcome to the first episode of Money on the Move, where we talk about how, well, naturally, money moves. Today, we'll be talking about a topic very close to both our hearts, money transfer. So let's just get to it. Hey, Malani, how are you doing? Wonderful, Faisal. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So let's start about some of the top themes that were prevalent in 2017 as far as the money transfer uh, ecosystem is concerned. And let's start with something, you know, uh, that was on everyone's mind, which is transfer-wise turned a profit or supposedly turned a profit of $1.6 billion valuation and raised $280 million for further expansion. What's your take on that? It's a company that doesn't talk much about itself, right? Yeah, it doesn't. But I think um, if they did indeed turn a profit, uh, I think for the first time, uh, there's a proven business case for the digital MTO uh, model. You know, there's been a lot of questions raised about it over the years. Um, there's also been um, a bit of a confusion around, you know, is this the real audience and are they really going to drive down the cost of remittances? Uh, but this year we saw all the digital MTOs um, make a lot of leaps in the space. Um, it wasn't just transferwise. I think pretty much any digital MTO you name, uh, they got, um, you know, a really high valuation, were able to raise another round of funding, uh, open up new markets. So I think the space is really heating up. Yeah, but it brings me to another question, which is, you know, like I read somewhere that about 70,000 or was it 700,000 people log on to the internet for the very first day every day. That's 70,000 people. Let's assume it's 70,000 mm-hmm. people. 70,000 people will come to the internet for the very first day in their lives every single day, right? So likewise, I feel that the people that these digital MTOs are targeting are the people who are going to be sending home money for the very first time. The new, the new, uh, you know, vertical of people who believe in sending money online, but these are the new entrants. What happens to the old entrants? The bulk of the money sent today is still done offline, still done via physical shops and so forth. Are these digital MTOs trying to convert those people online? I think not, you know. So it does make me question the growth. It's there, but the real low-hanging fruit 
or perhaps a better way of saying it, the fruit already on the ground are the people who are walking into a money transfer operators, you know, uh, MTO shops and sending money. Who's converting them online? Well, I I have a personal anecdote to share here that I think um, that maybe puts into perspective that this is really um, a pretty diverse audience, the audience that is sending money. Um, and a lot more care needs to be taken to sort of segment uh, and understand better whether this is a challenge more around education when it comes to digital MTOs, or is it just one of access altogether? For example, just three weeks ago, um, I was catching up with a friend of mine, a Nigerian native who's living in London. Uh, and he mentioned to me um, that, you know, he was still sending money through the post office back to Nigeria, back to his family in Nigeria. Uh, and, and he's someone who... Um, I mean, for all sense of the world, it's, it's he's someone like us, you know. He's well-educated, um, in a very high-paying job, native of London now. Um, and sometimes it, it makes you think that maybe it's just an awareness question because I mentioned to him about World Remit. Um, and the next thing you know, he tried it out and he was in love with the service. He just n- had never heard of it. He had no way of knowing about it because I think deep set behaviors in immigrant communities continue. Um, so, so that's one untapped audience. I think very much within the profile of audiences that these digital MTOs are targeting, there's still a lot of people who are not aware of the services. Uh, but, but then there is that bigger audience that that migrant worker, as as we know it, you know, someone who's migrated to another country in search of better opportunity um, and is remitting a much lower sum of money more frequently. And that audience still remains to be a very physical MTO driven target audience. And I think um, like, like you pointed out, I, I don't know whether 2018 holds, um, you know, a change for this audience because um, it could just be such deep set behaviors that even the cost efficiencies coming from a digital MTO is not something that they are able to know or perceive of, you know. That's true. But I also say, and I'll be very blunt about it, this audience that we are talking about happens to be your blue-collar worker, not your white-collar worker. They aren't educated enough. They aren't natives of the countries that they live in. They certainly are the backbone of the worker bees, if you will, that make the, that country or that city work. Uh, you know, they, they are the people responsible that keep the wheels churning and, you know, put the food on the tables, etc. But they are, for, for a very large part, uneducated. And it is complacency, uh, you know, for them. They have learned to do something once. It works. They don't want to change it. They are very apprehensive of finding new solutions. And the need or the want of going out and doing market research, a study, or or doing window shopping, or even doing competitive shopping, you know, and seeing if they can get a better price just isn't on their list. And, and potentially, it's a question of access as well, right? Sometimes when you think about it, if they have only a couple of hours on a Sunday free to get all their errands done, um, it's they probably go to the same neighborhood uh, and complete their shopping, their money remittance, and any other services that they need to get done. So when it comes to that, though, I think in 2017, we saw a lot of different countries, send their countries, as we call them, um, address this issue 
a little bit differently with a lot of digital MTOs cropping up to address this segment, but they were not always successful. And that's because fundamentally it's exactly what you pointed out, which is this sort of complacency or deep set behavior um, means that they're not out there looking for it and finding them is very expensive. The cost of acquisition of someone like that who um, is, you know, very much needs a physical touch point to be educated um, and then also does not remit large sums of money at one time uh, becomes a real barrier. You know, I have this theory. It's, well, it's not tested, so it's just a hypothesis. And that is that you have, I don't know, a million plus sometimes. I don't even know. In the world, the number is immensely huge, maybe 10, 15 million. But you have about a million plus, let's say, points of presence in the United States, for example, mm-hmm that are sending money. These are shops. You can't just have a million businesses just go out of business and not do money transfer anymore. So there has to be some some very defined strategy. There has to be some very defined methodology of traversing the traffic that is coming in as physical into digital. And then how do you compensate these people, these agents that have held the flagship store of Western Union and RIA and MoneyGram and everyone else for so long, do they just go out of business? Do they just die a sudden death? What happens to them? That question really hasn't been answered. I know that money, you know, the, the, the money transfer giants like Western Union and MoneyGram and RIA, etc., do have a game plan, but I'm sure it doesn't include their agent. I think in the end, the agent will have to be sacrificed in some way. I, I mean, I, I wonder if there's um, there is an opportunity here for, for example, Western Union and Western Union Digital is a good case study, right? Where there's a certain omni-channel experience to money transfer, and it's the same. Retail went through this cycle a couple of years ago. Everything in detail was about the omni-channel experience. People weren't going to the to the physical store anymore; um, they were just going online to shop and the question became, what do we do with all this physical real estate? Um, Does it serve a different purpose because the conversion is happening online? And to me, money transfer is going through that same cycle just a couple of years later, which is they have all this physical real estate or in, or the agent network sometimes isn't necessarily theirs and and it's co-partner network. Um, But is there potentially a different use for it around education, one-time setup, etc. And then transitioning the user online and doing the continuous recurring transfers online to make this a more cost efficient system. But it's it's a yeah, it's it's a real head scratcher. Yeah. I, I you know it, it takes me back to the time of nineteen nineties, the early nineties when the mall real estate space was just prime. It was very, very expensive to get a shop. Uh, they were all booked. Everyone was clamoring for inches anywhere that any way, which way they could find yeah. it. And look at the malls in America today. Ghost towns, some of them bankrupt, being turned into you know uh, literally zombie-like states. You know, there, there, there's no one over there. Haunted places, uh, losing value. Anchors are moving out. Retail traffic is dropping. Foot traffic is dropping. Losses are being mounted. The next um, real estate decline, etc., that will come is going to come from commercial malls. It's already happening, by the way. Bank of America, if you follow it, you know, is, is reporting it. So I feel that when we look at the money transfer ecosystem in, let's say, for 2018, 
I will see more closures of agents. Uh, call it culling, call it you know sizing down, call it whatever, call it de-risking. I feel that there will be a lot more businesses going out of business who have been traditional money transfer operators for a long, long time, primarily because they relied so much on the Western Union and the RIA and the other brands to carry them forward. And then one day, you know, they let go of the hand and they say, okay, you're on your own. We're going our way. You go your way. And they don't know any other way other than the Western Union franchisee way, you know. And I think they will have a very, very difficult time and be out of business. And they will try, they will cry, and they will, you know, just do everything, but they will drown. But then, you know, Faisal, this brings to mind another question for you then. Um, recently, we, we came to learn that and Financial and MoneyGram uh, can no longer merge or the merger and acquisition that was planned cannot go through. And a big part of Ant Financial's interest in MoneyGram was the physical agent network that MoneyGram had in the U.S., right? So Ant Financial had developed this receiver coverage in Southeast Asia, in China, um, and, and other parts of Asia, if you will. Um, and they were now looking to really captivate the U.S. sender market uh, through the physical MTO branch. So obviously, when when the news came out, I mean, this was a huge blow to Ant. And it really makes me wonder, like, in terms of all, all of this talk that we're having around digitizing remittances, um, at the end of the day, are the big bets still around, you know, the physical network for remittance? Uh, and and you shared some of your thoughts around it, but I'm I'm curious to know how you how you sort of put that in perspective with this. I think it is, still is the physical cannot go away. I for one, and I you know I, I it's we'd like to be as experts as we can, but I for one did not see the failure of this merger. I thought it would go through. I thought it would have some hiccups, but it'll go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite. Quite a few people, quite a few friends of mine called it the day one and said, never going to happen. And I said, ah, he's just being negative. But, you know, hats off to them for their foresight. And uh, I learned a thing or two. I, I feel that the physical will remain. I'll give you some statistics from the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are my statistics. I cannot share the source, but I'll just tell you. Um, you may up to believe them, uh, believe in them or not, that, that is up to you. 84% of the transactions going from the United States to, let's say, um, South America, 84% are happening through MTOs, walk-in MTOs, physical locations. 6% is happening online via non-banking financial institutions like uh, Zoom, like TransferWise or World Remade or, or anyone else. And that's 90% total. And the remaining 10% is happening through financial institutions like the Bank of America and Citi and JP Morgan Chase. So you might be actually logging on to you know, your Citi website or your Bank of America account yeah. or walking into their branch and be using them to send money. So 10% is happening through banks, 6% through NBFIs, but a whopping 84% is happening through the physical network. You cannot ignore that amount, that, that number. The same is really, almost the same is true although slightly higher for the Middle East, 
It's almost 88% is happening on, on foot traffic. 88% of money that goes to Southeast Asia countries, the SARC nations, right? India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Philippines, um, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, Sri Lanka is all happening on MDOs. So I feel that the retail location is not going to die anytime soon in these areas, but they will be culled down. You know, if there was a retail location where you, if you walked out of your home and there were 10 locations to go to, I feel that choice, that choice will come down to maybe two or three locations. You won't have 10 stores to walk into because seven of them will probably go out of business. Right. I was listening decently to your podcast um, when you were talking about um, your visit to Tanzania a couple of years ago. And you mentioned something really interesting mm -hmm. about agents over there and this ability to sort of multitask and get the value of the real estate by doing multiple services in one location. Um, you know, of course, the example there was um, was a bit um, around, the, you, know, you know, the same guy was chopping up phones, you know, cashing out money as well as doing haircuts, etc. But so it, it was pretty vibrant. But I was wondering if um, if that's really where the future of um, agent networks is going, which is being able to offer multiple services and some of them sort of more value added services than others uh, with a bit of a higher margin there um, to to stay in existence and have a fighting chance. I think I take a very skewed view of this thing. I, the way I look at it is the governments, and I mean the plural of that, the governments, uh, the money makers, the banks, the payment processors, the financial institutions, your incumbents, your existing FI incumbents would like to see the end of cash. It is expensive. It is non-trackable. There's a lot of being stored around. But more so, if I have $100 and you have $100 and we exchange it, we could do this exercise all day long. Either you would have the $100 or I would. But the value of that money would not diminish. But if we were to do that electronically, I'd have 100 If I give it to you, take 3% off, shave 3% off, you have 97%. You give it back to me, I have 97 minus 3% and so forth. And you lose 79 times and that $100, gone. <laughs> So it makes more sense in a depleting economy for these institutions to have a fee, digital cash, digital money, where after a certain amount of transactions, the money disappears, that money is converted into fees, income, and new money has to be created. So I, I hold a very negative view, uh, you know, because I, I, although I love cash, I still do. Uh, I feel that the death of cash is going to be accelerated, if you will, and governments want more control over your money, your taxation, your KYC, and all sorts of compliance examples would be thrown at you and jargon would be thrown at you. Oh, we need to control AML. Oh, we need to control terrorist financing. Oh, we need to control sanctions of the people list, etc., etc. That's fine. They were happening before as well. But elimination of cash, I think, will yield and uh, result in a very vibrant crypto economy that I feel will stand up uh, in parallel to cash and be the cash equivalent. That's that's actually one of the other things that I wanted to talk to you about today. Um, in the world of crypto and money transfer, um, a lot happened in 2017, but the effort wasn't um, so united 
as you will be or it wasn't as um, widely spread or widely seen at least um, to the industry overall. One of the big ones that came up, of course, was Ripple. Um, and we had a lot of banks climbing onto the RippleNet platform um, and Ripple even standing up and saying that, you know, we believe central banks will adopt us um, in the coming future. So it was a very strong prediction that they made. Um, is that is that your prediction as well uh, of 2018? So I don't uh, subscribe to the theory that Ripple will be the default protocol. I don't think so. Any con- I, I think there are going to be many protocols. Ripple will just be one of them. We have a singular protocol for the internet. We have a singular protocol for uh, GSM, you know, telephone, telephony, for data. But when it comes to money, there is no single protocol. And I certainly don't think so. A centralized American company will have the upper hand on something like this. I certainly don't think so. I don't see the Russians agreeing to it. I don't see the Chinese agreeing to it. I don't see many, many other nations agreeing to one set standard. Also, it's very important to understand that there's a huge difference in Ripple and XRP, which is the currency that Ripple has that everyone is so hoping about. The banks don't use XRP. The banks use the Ripple protocol without the XRP. The XRP is supposed to be this utility token, a currency that's supposed to drive the transfer and value and instant settlement, etc. That really hasn't taken off for that purposes yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, banks are using, you know, the Ripple protocol directly to in, in, interact with their uh, ledgers uh, with one another without going through an intermediary. But I feel uh, Ripple's biggest advantage would probably be the uh, ILP, which is the inter-ledger protocols. You have so many different uh, ledgers coming out, so many different blockchains coming out. What connects all these blockchains together? So if the Chinese have their own version, the Americans have their own version, the European decides to have their own version, and SARC their own, GCC their own, well, okay, so we've got all these disparate island nations of payment networks. What connects them all? That could be the IPL, the Interledger, uh, you know, the, the, the ILP, the Interledger Protocol made by Ripple, which could be a huge thing because it's, it's like that unifying equation that ties everything together as far as the mtu operations i think a lot more could have happened but because of the bad name that crypto has been is being has been given or is being given to uh, a lot of the banks have decided to de-risk any business involved with crypto hence money transfer operators are finding it extremely difficult or even pseudo money transfer operators are finding it extremely difficult to get into the game of crypto transfers, instant transfers, lower cost transfers, lower fee transfers, safe transfers, open transfers, because they don't have access to bank. Right. So I feel I feel this situation is going to get even worse. Uh, I, I feel the fiat and the crypto are now going to be officially at war this year. Right. I mean, last year we saw some action in Hong Kong and the Philippines, but I think nothing really took off to the point that um, that you know you were you were seeing mainstream adoption for any of these money transfer operators or so-called, like you said, money money changers even um, that were um, that were trying to be formidable in the space. I'd really like to see the crypto ecosystem take off. But I feel that there's a lot of inertia involved in convincing the financial institutions and regulators 
who are just being asses for no reason. Um, and it, it really, it comes down to that. I have talked to so many regulators. I have on record, and I mean on record because I record my calls. I have on record regulators. I ask them, do you know how the blockchain works? They say, absolutely no. I said, then how are you writing rules for it? You know, and, and, and they're, they're stumped. I know regulators who say, I said, have you ever done a money transfer? I said, no. I said, you've never done a money transfer. Do you see the irony when I shout and cry and kick that you are writing rules for it? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and they don't, they don't see the irony. They said, so what? So these are just rules. I said, yes, but you're writing rules. You know, you're, you're shaping the market with your rules. And yet you might just be the, the inverted catalyst, if you will. So, you know, you, you think you're doing good, but you're not actually. You're slowing the industry down. Yeah, absolutely. Any big predictions for 2018, Faisal? So, yes, I do have predictions for 2018. In 2012, uh, there was a question on Quora uh, that says, what, are, what will the money transfer industry look like in the next five years? And I didn't touch that question. I answered it because the edit log says that it was last answered in 2012. And I made predictions for the next five years. I'd say about 90, 90% of them came true. Maybe one or two were halfway met, but not completely true. But 90, 95%. So my predictions for 2018, I will actually put them up in public and predict something for the next 12 months. I'm not sure if I've thought through to go on the microphone today, but I hopefully in a week or two, I will put it in writing and then discuss this online. Looking forward to it. So Faisal, another thing that's been on my mind, um, looking at what happened last year was, last year was interesting because you had all these telcos really, you know, no longer just sort of navigating around banking, but hardcore entering the banking space. Um, So you had Orange launch Orange Bank towards Q4 of the year. Um, and then here, even here in Asia and Singapore, we had, uh, you know, Singtel and M1 launched their international remittance services directly targeting the diaspora from Indonesia, Philippines, etc. So, you know, the surrounding Southeast Asian countries. Now, I don't have a lot of data on how well these are doing, but this is definitely a trend for moving forward because all this while when we were talking about telcos entering the space it was in the receiving countryside where telcos were launching mobile money services but now you start seeing this trend where like sender country telcos are also entering the space in a different way Uh, what i'm curious about is why aren't more sender country telcos getting into the space faster what's preventing them I think regulation, it's a great question, by the way, and a great observation. I think regulation is what is preventing them. If I were to wear the telco hat, and the way I would look at it is, okay, you know what? How many minutes am I selling international and how many minutes am I selling locally? Chances are that most of my customers make a local call rather than an international call. So likewise, most of my customers are going to be doing local money transfer rather than international money transfer. And if I do do an international money transfer, I really don't have control if I'm actually sending money to Malani or Faisal or, you know, Joe the Bomber or who knows. I just don't know. And that risk itself, when compared to the estimated earnings and income, might not justify and say, you know what, ah, forget it. We just we, we won't go into the international part of it. We'll just stick ourselves to the local 
domestic payment services and payment systems. Most might take that approach. And this is, again, uh, hinging on the fact that these are the telcos that want to go into domestic mobile money business. What's your take? I mean, you you, you have a better insight than uh, me, certainly, on this thing. Well, you're right to say that I think some of the KYC, um, the compliance requirements for something like this, uh, possibly are an investment that the telcos haven't, um, are not up for today. Um, and yeah. I think that to me that sort of represents it's just not, it's just not in their muscle memory you know they don't know these things exactly and it, exactly what i was going to say i think it just speaks to the fact that you know you're from an industry um and even when you think about innovation you think of it within sort of very strict parameters of that industry whereas to go ahead and build this arm of compliance because it's not it's not unheard of it's not something that can't be done it's not an investment that um you know uh, that that should be even treated as a sunk cost because this is where the world is moving. You know, next thing you know, uh, pretty much any sort of value transmission might in the future require some sort of basic KYC. So it's not, I don't look at it as, as something so daunting, but I think it is fair to say that this is probably a bit of a blind spot um, or not something that that is actively being, a business case for it has actively been built. I'd, I'd be curious mm-hmm. to see if that if that changes in 2018, though. Let me ask you a question in reverse. What are your predictions for 2018? Well, <laughs> that's an interesting one. I have to give it a lot more thought, Basil. Probably even more than more than a week or two that you're going to be spending on it. But I'd be curious <laughs> to <laughs> I'd be curious to uh, might be might be 2019 by then, huh? <laughs> well. Um, I'll be curious to pick this up. It, in about it, it's always easier in hindsight, you know. <laughs> I know. Imagine if I asked you, you know, what did you think of the past five years? Uh, but the thing is, now I can go back and read uh, your core uh, answer, so I'll, I'll probably know what you thought of them. <laughs> you got to commit to it anyways, in paper. I, but, yeah. I, hey, I, I did. <laughs> and for five years, it was so hard. Just And, you know, sometimes you, you bite your nail. Sometimes you completely forget about it. But... Uh, uh, maybe on the next show we will discuss this thing. And uh, if you have any questions or comments, you can always write to me. It's uh, Faisal, F-A-I-S-A-L, at aroundthecoin.com. We will eventually name this show. We have a few candidate names. We will eventually have a email for the show. We will eventually have Malani's picture and everything else as a co-host so this is a pilot episode you know we may make mistakes we're still getting the format template right it will take maybe four or five tries but stick with us it's the only kind of a show that talks about the money transfer ecosystem in the world there is no other show on the planet we're very proud to be the host of this first pilot show so malini thank you very much till next time we shall speak soon thank you Faisal. it was a pleasure Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.